Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name's Mel Brooke. I'm the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD. In this podcast, my guest is Emma Duris. Emma is a chartered psychologist and a professor in rheumatology and psychology. We invited Emma along after hearing her talk about some of the key messages in a presentation that she made at last year's British Society for Rheumatology conference that was titled No House Without Mental Health. Our discussion recognises the psychological and emotional impact of being diagnosed and living with rheumatic diseases, how it can create anxiety, affect confidence, change people's perceptions of who they are and how many people can experience low mood and even a grief cycle for their lost health and future options. As well as the impacts, we talk about what kinds of support might exist for people and where they might be able to access some wellbeing support themselves. Hello and welcome, Emma. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Very happy to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. Probably a good idea if we start with a little bit of an introduction to you, to you and your background, just so that anyone listening can kind of get a feel for, for where you are in the field of what we're going to be talking about. Okay. Um, so my name is Emma Dewars and I'm a chartered psychologist. My role is, or my job title is Professor in Rheumatology and Psychology, and that sort of captures the work that I do. So it's a research role, and we do a lot of work around the interaction between people's physical and mental health um, in rheumatic conditions, particularly looking at things like well-being, self-management. We've done lots of work um, around fatigue um, in terms of um, health services and, and what patients, um, sort of ways that patients can manage these you know, very impactful symptoms. Mm. So that's probably an overview of what I do. Excellent. Thank you, Emma. And what we're going to be doing today on this podcast is we're going to try and talk around some of the key messages in a presentation that you made at the British Society for Rheumatology conference earlier this year that had the title No Health Without Mental Health and um, we've invited you along because we know this whole topic is really really important to our patient listeners and um, there's a lot more awareness around it so that's that's what we were we're going to try and do today so thank you for coming along to talk through that. So if we can start off just to introduce the subject a little bit how do you think patients with rheumatic conditions perceive their need for mental health support? I mean, is it how important it is to them? And what what have you heard from your working with patients? That's a great question. And I think from working with patients, what we often hear is people feel that mental health and well-being is an aspect of their care that is often missing or overlooked mm. and some people have said it's actually one of the hardest aspects of dealing with their rheumatic condition they often feel they get you know pretty good support for dealing with the physical symptoms and the physical impact but far less to cope with psychological and emotional impact and as you can imagine the nature and extent of what those patient support needs are varies extensively it varies between patients, but it also varies for the individual 
over time. You know, people have changes in their, for example, in their arthritis, in their physical health or in the treatments that they're taking. But also, of course, it's in the context of life more widely. And those kinds of life event changes can also just, you know, really have a very big impact. So, Uh, One of the things I mentioned in the talk was that a while back, the NHS Confederation looked at mental health in long-term physical health conditions. And what they suggested is that almost everyone who gets a diagnosis of a long-term physical health condition is likely to face difficulties coping with their illness and the consequences that this is going to have for their lifestyle and their relationships. So we can really think of finding things emotionally and psychologically difficult as a normal response to a stressful situation. Um, So, you know, that's across the board. That's most people. And then there will be a smaller number of people with higher levels of need, you know, and, and right at the top, we're talking about people who may have severe, complex and enduring mental health conditions. Um, and those will require specialist mental health interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that's highlighted in this document is that people can have support needs at different levels simultaneously. So somebody may have clinical depression. It may be something they had before uh, or since developing their uh, rheumatic condition. But you can have, um, you know, be dealing with that and having support for that and still be anxious about an aspect of managing your rheumatic condition um, and require support for that. So it's it's really about understanding each individual in terms of what's going on for them. Mm. And I think that's a really important message to kind of like normalise this, this impact that some people find it quite confusing that they're suddenly feeling more anxious or they're not as confident as they used to be when actually they've yeah. always been robust and resilient and confident. You know, you almost have to reclassify who you are as a person so if you haven't had any kind of previous issues with any of that, this this also can yeah. um, quite quite a big impact, I think, on how people perceive their future. Absolutely, totally. It's a real challenge to a sense of self. Yeah. Um, a while back, we had some discussion groups, and we were talking about mental health, um, and people were talking about this idea of you know it really does change over time. So people mentioned for them personally, around the point of diagnosis, people were experiencing anxiety and worry about their future. Mm. Some patients also described actually feeling quite angry, particularly if they'd had a difficult time getting to that point of diagnosis. Mm. And then people described how over time, living with this rheumatic condition just added a layer of complexity to their lives. Mm. Um, It was dealing with as you said, with these challenges to your sense of identity, um, the impact on relationships, lots of practical impacts, you know, trying to work, um, the time out to attend appointments, having to make decisions about treatment. And of course, living with pain and fatigue, which are really big factors for people. But I think, yeah, a lot of people it called, you know, it was, it was really, as you say, something where people sort of thought, this isn't me, uh, you know, this response I'm having. Yeah, it changes, changes your perception of yourself. And a lot yeah. of people I've talked to also talk about this kind of this grief cycle that you go through for what was your previous life. I mean, yeah. you might have been living with the pain and kind of anxious about what might be going on. But when you get a diagnosis, sometimes 
it it's a real game changer in terms of like how you see your future. It's not something mm-hmm. that's necessarily fixable. It might be more manageable, but you have this sense of loss. Um, and when we talked about, I think, or you talked about in your presentation about the experience of sorrow. I mean, I, I yeah. totally get that. And it takes quite a while for that to settle. Absolutely. And you realise, you know, thinking about it, whether we're explicit about it or implicit about it, we all do think about, we, we, we think about our future. We kind of have this idea of what the future is going to be like for us. So that gets derailed, you know, that gets thrown right off course. Um, and that's, you know, that's really hard to deal with. Yeah, it takes your confidence away as well, your confidence to interact and be be the person, not just because of the pain, but because you're not confident that you're going to cope with the pain when you're out, for, for example. So it impacts things like your ability to socially connect or to feel like you're not so reliable as you used to be. Yeah. It's and a- that's that's almost like the illness becoming you, you know, rather than (laughs) part of you, it's that's taking on a very major part of who you are in that situation, isn't it? In terms of when it's shaping how you feel and what you do. Mm. And it is a grief cycle because we talk about, you know, I've talked about with people about the shock and awe of the diagnosis, and then you have this kind of grief cycle. And then you come to a point when you've been living with it for years, you do come to more of an acceptance so it is very much following that pattern, isn't it? That's all. Yeah. So as someone working in the rheumatology and self-management fields, why do you think there is a lack of support for people's mental health? What are the main barriers or challenges that contribute to this issue? Is it just the awareness in the first place? I don't actually think it's the awareness. I think the awareness is is there at least to a greater extent than it used to be um i think probably one of the main issues is that services are set up primarily to support patients with their physical symptoms that's what um where people's expertise lies in terms of the team so even though these are long-term conditions that can impact all areas of people's lives and relationships sort of historically if you like the rheumatologists and and have been there to help manage pain and fatigue and and control symptoms. And I would say that this sort of focus on the physical is it's not only patients who report this, so patients do, but actually so do plenty of rheumatology health professionals and they recognise the importance of patients' mental health and wellbeing. And, And many of the people that we've spoken to have talked about the need to look at the physical and the mental in tandem but that doesn't translate into the rheumatology team feeling that they've got the time or the confidence or the skills to address it. Um, and I think that's quite a big area is, is the sort of confidence to have a mental health conversation. Yeah. Um, so we can see if we look at some of the audit data that's collected about rheumatology services, very, very few teams have a psychologist embedded. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the main challenges um, b- because a psychologist can support patients, but a psychologist can also support other members of staff to have those conversations. Mm. Um And then I think there are other things that have come out. Uh, This is through conversations, again, both with 
patients and health professionals, often there's very little assessment around mental health. Um, And one of the things about assessment is it can bring an issue to the surface and mean that it's talked about. Mm. Um, So mental health is not assessed. Some patients have said they don't always feel it's appropriate to mention their mental health. Mm. Some other patients have explained that they if they do mention mental health, they feel it's closed down by the health professional. And that may be because the health professional thinks, I don't know how best to help here. Um, But again, when we had those discussion groups, the general feeling was that people wanted to be asked about their mental health and their well-being, uh, and they'd quite like assessment to be part of what they view as, you know, holistic care. Yeah. And I think hopefully that is what's coming in the future is this more sort of joined up care where you have the all the different experts that you need around you as a as a team and and I mean and we're all aware of the pressures on the NHS so it's unlikely that that's going to be anything that's happening everywhere all at once but hopefully that's that will be the future and within your work what's have we got any statistics what's kind of evidenced in terms of how many people are suffering from what kind of thing um, it's quite hard to give very conclusive statistics, but actually there's quite a lot of consensus around certain patterns and sort of evidence. Mm. So um, there's a, a really nice paper that reports um, people who have what we might call negative mental states. So that might be things that don't get a formal diagnosis, but things that you mentioned like sorrow Mm. or low mood and insomnia and worry. And those things can affect up to 65% of patients with rheumatic conditions. So that's a really high number. If we then go on to look at depression, that's thought to be around two to three times higher than in the general population. I think versus arthritis released some figures and they suggested that one in three people with rheumatoid arthritis experienced depression. Mm. Um, and, you know, it it is likely, I would think, to be the same in other rheumatic conditions, possibly higher in some for other, you know, for various reasons. Yeah. Um, and then if we go back to this audit that I mentioned that sort of tries to capture this picture of what's going on, they found that when patients are diagnosed, 50% score for low mood or anxiety. So using a sort of, you know, recognized questionnaire. And that number does go down over time, but it still stays pretty high. It's still 25% over a year later. So that's, you know, a quarter of people who are scoring for sort of a recognized level of low mood and anxiety or anxiety. That is high figures, isn't it? And and we're not just talking about the pain here. We're talking about all of those other impacts that we mentioned earlier, all the associations with, um, you know, the living with the disease, being able to function less. Um, I think you talked about in your presentation about, you know, one of the impacts could be of, of someone having low mood is that they're maybe not taking their medications like they should so there's this vicious cycle as well of pain and low mood and not looking after yourself yeah yeah and I think you know when we started we were talking about the extent to which things are recognized I think this 
intertwining between physical and mental health is really becoming much more recognized. Um, you know, pain and fatigue can be very debilitating. Um, but, and we do see that some patients who have more mental health difficulties experience worse physical health outcomes yeah. and symptoms. Um, and there is some evidence that people experiencing depression do less well on some of the drug treatments. So they're less likely to reach remission. Um, and as you say, uh, patients who are struggling with their mental health are less likely to take medications um, and treatments, non-pharmacological as well, um, as, as they're prescribed. And also, if we look at the wider literature, people who are, you know, really finding having sort of mental health challenges, they're less likely to engage in physical activity as well. Mm. And kind of we know how important that is for mental health, also for physical health. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, those sort of ripple out effects. So, you know, if if somebody's finding life hard, if, if their, their mental health is not great, it's harder to work. Mm. Um, that's really important for your sense of self and your identity as well, of course, as being financially incredibly important. Um, yeah. And if we think, so one of the indicators of depression is that people no longer experience joy or pleasure and things that previously made them happy. Yeah. So, you know, that is a big impact. Absolutely. Of life and those around you and your relationships with them. Yeah, that that not being able to feel joy because your mood is so low is also a self-perpetuating cycle, isn't it? Because you don't do anything that makes you feel happy. Um, you touched on things like, as well, you mentioned there about insomnia. One of the phrases that we as a as a patient experience uses pain insomnia, which is the pain that keeps you awake, but you also have the anxiety insomnia. Um, we have quite often brain fog, the, the inability to think clearly, and all of these things can really impact your day as well. Uh, your mood makes you more irritable, makes your relationships worsen, um, yeah. makes your ability to, to work more difficult. So, I mean, we've done podcasts on fatigue and sleep specifically because of the recognition of that. But when you, you know, you're adding into this whole kind of like vortex of, of issues, aren't you, that affect our mental health? Absolutely. It's so contextualized, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what's going on for each individual person. But as you say, you know, if you if you're in pain, if you experience, if you can't think clearly, if sleep is really disrupted or, you know, poor quality sleep, it's really tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And people have responsibilities like parenting or caring. And it's really hard to do that, not just because of the pain, but also when you are just mentally wiped out. Um, it's it's all of it, isn't it? It's all of it together as a kind of a really rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> It's all of it together and it links back in with what you were saying about the grief, because often, you know, it people may think back and think, but I used to be able to do this. Yeah. Constantly yeah. measure what you used to be able to do versus what you can't now do. And I think that's that's almost like a pattern of thought that you need to recognise and maybe try to to stop because that doesn't help you move forward with what you're living with now. 
but we can go on to that because that probably touches into this field of CBT, doesn't it? Cognitive behavioral therapy. So we'll come before we leave this podcast, we'll um, try and talk about some things that people can do. Yeah. So before we get on to all of that kind of thing, I think it's it's important to go back and talk about and maybe touch on on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the shielding impacts um, that's had for many people, specifically with these uh, vulnerabilities and rheumatic you know, conditions. And I know you've done some studies, haven't you? on this what have you what are your kind of findings from this so that's right so we talked to people in the southwest um, and we found that for some people who had this classification of clinically extremely vulnerable it really changed how they saw themselves we've touched upon this quite a, a bit about a sense of identity people hadn't thought of themselves as vulnerable and that's really quite a shift it's <laughs> quite you know, it can be quite scary, can be quite feel quite undermining. Um, and sort of linked to that, lots of people or the, of the, the people that we spoke to felt that their mental health had deteriorated over the last three years. Um, as I mentioned, we spoke to people in the Southwest, but that pattern is evidence from around the world. Yeah. So if we look, um, COVID has been linked to significant increases in the prevalence of depression and anxiety, but also trauma and stress-related disorders um, in patients who have rheumatic conditions. Mm. And if we look at that evidence, it's likely to be um, due to a combination or influenced by a mix of the stress of being increased risk of infection, the effect of physical isolation, and also patients having to manage their rheumatic condition and their health with far, with very limited access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. So as I say, some people feeling quite abandoned or, and forgotten. Yeah. Um, and shielding is very tough. You mm -hmm. know, patients having to remain isolated in their homes, having minimal contact with others that had a huge impact. And I kind of, I think it really reinforces the importance of social connectedness for mental health. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes people describe support as being great, but other times some people who they thought would be very supportive didn't really understand the connection between the rheumatic condition and vulnerability to COVID. Mm. And I think that was quite hard for some people. Absolutely. And I know there's been other works done on, you know, how toxic loneliness and isolation can be. And I think the other thing for the people that were shielding is that many of them continued it for months and some of them might even now still be nervous of, you know, because you, you come into the, a wintry season and you hear about flu jabs and your next COVID job. So these are lasting impacts and these make social participation even more difficult than it was before because you're nervous of meeting and, and this whole new label that you've now got of being vulnerable, I think it has got this enduring kind of traumatic. Like a ramification, isn't it? It just, yeah, it reverberates. <laughs> yeah, it's had a massive impact, hasn't it? It has. And, you know, the other thing that came across when we were speaking to people is how judged people felt <laughs> that the decisions they took and the behaviours that 
they felt safe giving were almost like sort of up for scrutiny or discussion by other people. As I said, some people thought they should go out more. Some people thought they should go out less. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, it it was very judged, I think. Yeah, and I think that went on happening as well because people who continued to wear masks in supermarkets when we were all told we we don't have to wear them anymore, I think they felt judged because everyone would look at them as if almost crossly as if to say, why are you still wearing a mask? The pandemic, so, you know. So I think there's also a lot of like petty judging just in the general environment that, that people go in and out of. Mm, yes. Um I mean, there's been some there's been some learning curves from this pandemic. So for one, it's highlighted all these issues around mental health and isolation. It's also actually from a chronic pain perspective, it's enabled a lot more people to work from home and manage their energy more efficiently. But we what, are better at connecting online as well. I mean, yes. it doesn't suit everybody. But it, it, you know, it was helpful. I think at times we had meetings with people online, and we were still able to stay in touch. Absolutely, yes, we did um, some peer support stuff online, and you know that was invaluable to people who hadn't really been able to be out of their house for months on end. What steps or support initiatives do you think could be taken from all of this to help address? our mental health needs now of, of people with rheumatology conditions? So this is a kind of big and complicated question. And I think part of it is um, looking very locally. So we mentioned that very few services, I think it's, I don't know, maybe about 39% have psychology available in their service. Mm -hmm. So um, that doesn't mean there aren't some teams that have really good support in place because there will be. But currently, access to psychological support, I would say, is variable and it's patchy, mm. um, which is very far from ideal. But that, I think, is the current situation. So I would think about what is available both nationally and locally in terms of charities and organisation. Um, there are some sort of increasing, there are some interesting local initiatives that I come across, things like health walks. So you're out there with a group of people, uh, you know, in nature and moving. There are some very interesting social prescribing programs that, again, will be very localised. I've heard of all kinds of, you know, um, suitable yoga classes, for example, or dance, more moving music, dance initiatives. Um, there will be well-being services in different areas, some of which you can self-refer into. Um, but yeah, you'd, it's about knowing what's available locally. Um, and maybe a rheumatology, you know, there's one role I think that the rheumatology team can have is to know what is available, um, as well as patients finding out for themselves. When we talk to patients, a lot of people say how invaluable it is to speak to other people who have another rheumatic or, you know, who have a rheumatic condition as well. So a lot of people do like groups. I would say that within that, people mentioned that they want groups to feel positive and supportive. So it's that balance um, not dwelling too much on struggles and challenges, but you can be open, but then 
feeling like it's, you know, sort of constructive and, as I say, supportive and positive. Um, and then there's, there are all kinds of, I would say, more sort of generic um, advice around engaging in activities that bring pleasure and bring enjoyment if possible. So we've sort of described how life can become more restricted and more limited. And when we talk to people, some of the first things that get squeezed out and that go are people's hobbies um, mm. and their leisure and the activities that for them are relaxing or meaningful. So um, sometimes if we're sort of having these conversations, we're trying to think about what it is that someone values you know, what, what brings them that sense of meaning mm. and then um, trying to do things that reconnect people with those values. Um, and sometimes that might involve adapting an activity that can't be done in the same way as before. Mm. But what was it? What was the essence of that activity that was important? Can that be captured in another way? Um so I can sort of give you some examples of things that people have said that work for them. So, some people like mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, we were having a conversation earlier, weren't we, about watching the sea. Yeah. For some people, it's really helpful. And there are lots of resources out there. Moving and physical activity is associated with all kinds of health benefits, mental and physical. So finding the right uh, way to do that. Again, it, that suits somebody, you know, it could be being, um, it could be gardening, it could be um, an exercise class, it could be something very different. Being outdoors works for a lot of people, out in nature, um, that big perspective that we were talking about. For other people, it's around social connection and seeing friends. Um some people find it important to connect with community groups and faith groups, you know, and other people may focus more on learning something new. Um, and I guess what this often comes down to is taking time for yourself, feeling able to do that, feeling that it's, you know, allowed uh, and actually beneficial and helpful and linking in with something um, that we were talking about earlier, I think at the heart of this is the idea that you are the same person despite having to deal with a health condition and trying to get back to some of that. Yeah. Um, and probably one thing I would say as well is that patients have explained that sometimes quite a small change can feel like it makes a big difference to their well-being. Mm. And I think that's quite important because sometimes people have sort of said, this is overwhelming. I don't know where to start. And it's almost like, well, just some, try, you know, start with something small that you can do for yourself. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I would put that in the context of recognizing that sometimes people might benefit from specialist mental health support, you know, if we're talking about um, sort of a, a deep clinical depression. Yeah. Um, it's, and that's something for them, you know, to talk to their GP about and see what's yeah. available in terms of solid sort of support for that in their area. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, there is sort of, the, there are services available. 
I, I guess one of the concerns people may have is around things like waiting lists and waiting times. Mm. Um, but yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, all that you're saying, I mean, there is no one size fits all. Everybody sort of owes it to themselves to try and find the thing that that lifts them a little bit, don't they? I mean, yeah. you mentioned peer support. I've been a you know, massive supporter of peer support for a long time. <laughs> I found it invaluable myself and I was first early diagnosed and hopefully been able to give some of that back over the years to people coming in and out of, of the peer support groups that, that I've been involved with. Um, and we were talking just before we started the podcast, I'd just come back from a, a mini break in Cornwall saying how therapeutic I found being able to watch the waves rolling in and out on the beach. That for me, that's a mindfulness. I mean, I, I love sitting in the garden and taking time out for myself and pacing my day. I find that helps my energy levels. And But everybody's got to find the thing that helps them, haven't they? Whether it's talking, listening to music, yeah. watching a film that they just love and it's like a comfort <laughs> film. Um, sometimes just having a day, literally having a duvet day and allowing yourself that time to gather your energy back up and get things under control, isn't it? But um, we've we've done some podcasts on the social prescribing. I think that could be really helpful because they will work with you to help you find some of those things. So I would encourage people to go and listen back to that if they haven't listened to it. And I think we've got something in our area called Talking Therapies, which before we've had them come along to some of our events and, um, you know, be around for people to find out more about that. Uh, we'll try and put some links in our show notes to a few things if we can if we can find some between us, some sources that people can go and um, it start that process, perhaps if they haven't already. And you mentioned things like other kinds of mental health. We talk about cognitive behavioural therapy, but I guess that's something that's not always easily available to everybody in their in their areas no I mean I think NHS talking therapies which used to be called IAPT increasing access to talking therapies um, they use a cognitive behavioral model right. and quite a lot or you know some rheumatology teams will have for example patient education programs or well-being programs um like living well, that have that cognitive behavioural approach sort of underpinning it, if you like, which yeah. is um, giving people the time and space to think about the connection and the interaction between uh, their thoughts, their feelings, um, and that will be physical and emotional feelings and their behaviours and how they're interacting to sort of shape and drive they do. So it, it's really helpful for unpicking sort of cycles that we get into and habits that we have and questioning why we do things in the way that we do is something that used to work for us, still works for us. And, and I, I think sometimes it is the time and space to do that because for the most part, these are automatic processes that we don't, you know, we <laughs> automatically do things. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we've often found when we've done groups is how important conversations are with those around us we may not have. So we may be in the habit of, um, you know, always 
undertaking a task, always providing a meal for our family or something like that, because we've always done it and we think it's part of our role. But actually, it's having quite a detrimental impact, for example, if you're trying to pace and manage your energy. But often we don't talk about these things, you know, um, and we've have mentions of this idea of identity. Mm. Um, and a lot of it comes from, you know, the, the way we've always done things. And it's quite hard to do things the way we used to. Yeah. If we're um, dealing with physical, with the sort of symptoms as well. So I think it's sort of unpicking that. Mm. And these recognitions, they, I mean, they very much come from things like peer support, don't they? And I know a lot of people, yeah. we mentioned internet and being online. I know a lot of people find being part of, um, you know, a Facebook group or something really useful because even if they don't want to interact too much with it, they can normalize and sometimes get some tips just by being part of that group and reading some of the threads as long as they're not all too ranty but um (laughs) yes saying about the balance of uh, within peer support has to be has to be the positive as well as the recognition so i I think the tips is really helpful i mean i think people always so many times people say i I was just listening to somebody and i realized they had such a you know a creative or useful way of doing something. Mm. Um, I think it can level up where you are as well. Cause for me, sometimes I, you know, listen to other people and I think, do you know what? I'm lucky cause I'm not that bad, you know, compared to whoever at that point in time. Um, and maybe somebody's done that listening to me sometimes and they thought, well, I'm not that bad, you know, <laughs> those kind of like mini uplifts, even if it's just for a minute, mm. I think. Do we, do we understand anything about the needs of how, you know, there's there's lots of people out there, there's different age groups, demographics and ethnicities. Is there, is there differences between all of these things or is it anything that we recognise? I think we increasingly do. And, and it's in with COVID, I think. Um, so it is a really important, this idea of the variation in people's support needs and we talked about how individual it is um mm. and it's also we mentioned the context so you know our physical our mental health can't be looked at in isolation from the rest of our lives mm. so if we think that um there's a cost of living crisis um or, or, or people who experience disadvantage or multiple disadvantage it's much harder to stay well, it's it's you know that certain groups of people are more likely to become unwell. It's mm-hmm. also harder then to stay well. It's harder to have good mental and physical health when all your con- the sort of context around you is challenging and hard. Mm. Um, and I think there's increase. You know, we're increasingly aware of where there may be groups or communities where there are particular uh, inequalities mm. and. For example, we can see in some of the research funding that then there's now a drive to say, please try and make sure that the people who are supporting your research and getting involved in your research are from a diverse background. Because, you know, um, it's really important that all the research we do is, <laughs> is, is a close collaboration with patients. And then we're saying, can, you know, look at the diversity of the patients so that the research reflects that broader population. Absolutely. I mean, how do you understand what people need if 
you don't hear from those people in the first place. It's that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, we've been trying to, you know, make new connections and build new relationships recently. And one of the things that we heard that we're taking on board is that for some people, they want the researchers to go to them in their communities. Um, I think historically we've sort of put calls out and asked people to come to us Mm -hmm. and they're saying, well, actually now I want, you know, I'd like you to come to my community centre when I'm in my community and you can see in that context. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've just said how important context is and trying to understand what someone's dealing with when you can see, um, you know, where they're living and, and who they're living with and things like that. Yeah. What situations they're dealing with and yeah. Yeah, their whole sort of circumstance has a massive impact as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thanks, Emma. We've talked about so much in this podcast. <laughs> we can probably, you know, we can't solve everything. We can't cover everything, but I think we've covered quite a lot. And hopefully this gives people some thought towards moving forward and looking out to help this aspect of themselves. I think um, there are... <laughs> Like as a starting point, I there are resources available. You know the national charities we were saying versus arthritis yeah. and and NRAS and I don't know the extent to which people know that, but you know they're generally freely available and yeah. And I mean, you know, ultimately there's charities like the Samaritans as well. Yeah. If people are really struggling and and in crisis, that that stands, doesn't it? Totally. You know phone in your doctor getting that immediate help that you might need yeah yeah and going right back to what we said at the beginning how normal (laughs) viewing it as normal yeah it's really important that people can acknowledge that some of these emotions and some of these feelings are unfortunately normal part of part of having this whole experience of having a rheumatic disease thanks emma It's been really good talking to you. I'd love to think we could get you back maybe in future for something. Wouldn't it be great to come back and say there'd been some changes? changes. Maybe we can do that. I I would definitely say to anyone listening, you know, what we've talked about, get involved in research because this is so important. If, If things are to change, we need those voices, don't we? Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Bird are committed to helping patients increase knowledge about rheumatic conditions because we know this can have a really positive impact on living with them. We also have a great focus on enabling people to get involved in rheumatology research to help make sure that new medications and treatments meet the needs of patients. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our volunteers and the support of our donors and sponsors, all of whom we are immensely grateful to. You can sign up to be notified about all our podcasts and our patient engagement research opportunities by joining our mailing list. Just send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The address and links are in the show notes.